Major funding for Telehell is provided by Dave's Archives. If you're looking for retro commercials from the 50s all the way up to the 90s, and possibly some points beyond in the future, turn to Dave's Archives, also home to the TGIF live stream on Friday nights. Go to davesarchives.com. By RetroCirc on YouTube, home to the off-duty mind players and all those off-air commercials that he likes to put up so much from the 80s and 90s. Go to YouTube and type in RetroCirc, spelt with a Q at the end. And by the continuing financial support of our patrons at patreon.com slash telehealthpodcast, including Beth Campbell, Mr. Cheeseball, Joss Hoskinson, Rick Kalaki Jr., Chris Michaud, Meredith Morrissey, Jose Pasante, Rogue Crockett, and Neil Weinstein. Thank you. Well, I said this was going to be a wild card month, so... Oh. Huh. Don't recognize the ringtone. Ah, screw it. I can use a human interaction. Hello, telehealth. Wow, I was totally guessing on your phone number. I just started dialing the number of six a bunch of times. Is this really the narrator of telehealth? That depends on who you are and how much money I owe you. Well, my name is Neil Weinstein, and I've actually been giving you money for the past two seasons. Neil Weinstein? Why does that name sound so familiar? You're joking, right? You've been crediting me at the beginning of each show. You've been sending me books through your Patreon, and according to the barrage of emails I've been getting, I also owe you an episode request, and you owe me a co-host appearance on the show. Oh, that Neil Weinstein. I've been saying it wrong forever. I'm sorry about that. Uh, what can I do for you? I'm ready to make that request. And I'm also packed up for a visit to hell. Where's that pocket hell dragger of yours? Hold on now, hold on. One thing at a time here. First things first. Our budget down here has been a little tight this season. We may have our fair share of patrons, but unfortunately inflation has sort of set things back a little bit. So much so that you're actually the first guest to appear on the show this late in the season. What does that have to do with anything? Well, the point is, because our budget is low this year, we had to cut back on so-called fantastical things, like the sound effects we used to put together the pocket held dragger, and also our fourth wall. Fourth wall? But you're a podcast. And the very fact that we're referencing ourselves just goes to show that we do not have a fourth wall to break down. My point is, if you wanted to come to hell, just hang up the phone, walk down the hall, and swing a left. You'll find me. Wait, wait. So, hell is right down the hall from me? Well, technically, hell can be wherever you want it to be, and it being a podcast, the whole theater of the mind thing kind of comes into play here. But our budget is that low, Neil. Just meet me down here at what we'll just generously call Studio 6. I'll see you soon. Jeez, talk about theater of the mind. That's what I liked about working in audio editing when I was alive. I still had some imagination left in me. Anyway, welcome to hell! Co-host of the damn. Now, before you tell me what it is you want to review with me, I think it's only fair for us to get to know who you are, since... To me, anyway, you're simply a generous benefactor of our show. But that doesn't mean there isn't more to you. So now, in 66.6 seconds, tell us about yourself, Neil 
Weinstein. Well, I am born and raised here uh, in the Upper West Corner of the United States, just outside of Seattle. I was born before the Brady Bunch hit the air, and I've always been a TV buff, and especially a bad TV buff. So this seems right up my alley. All right, wonderful. You've now officially been better known. And now that we know who you are, I believe you said something about an episode request? Well, I was listening last month to your shows on failures from the Fox Network. And while I'm sure what you picked were good selections, I was kind of curious why you didn't pick anything from when the network was just starting out. You mean at the very beginning of the network in 1987? Yeah, didn't Fox have just as rough a start as the WB and UPN? In a sense, yes. And not just because Jamie Kellner and Garth Ansir were in charge of programming. But, as we mentioned previously, the network did start with a handful of nights of programming in the 80s, and a lot of the shows they put on that first year, with the exceptions of Married with Children, Tracy Ullman, and 21 Jump Street, kinda had a sense that either the other networks rejected them, or Fox was willing to put on anything just to keep the lights on. Such as the pitfall when a new TV network is starting out. Well, the thing I wanted you to review came from the first full season the network had on the air in the fall of 1987. I know there were plenty of shows to choose from, but when you have a show with a gimmick this subtle, I really didn't want to request anything else. Saturday, see why People Magazine says that women in prison could turn into the trashiest hoot on TV. <laughs> Don't miss Women in Prison, Saturday on Fox Weekend Television. Okay, Neil, you've got it. One hastily put together history of prison exploitation media coming right up. And now, high in beta carotene. This is Della Hell. Ever since storytelling was ever a thing, the stories themselves have been told under a number of different banners and umbrellas. Whether they be comedy, drama, action, science fiction, western, etc. The whole point was to get from once upon a time to happily ever after regardless of the genre. One of those genres has been seeing a lot of traction lately, and if the ratings for our show is any indication, I have a feeling the trend is going to continue elsewhere. Stories about crime have always fascinated the masses, whether they be the police who investigate crime, the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders, or the defense attorneys who try to disprove the other side. Though in spite of just how many of those stories have been told over the years, there seems to be an unusual lag in just how many stories involving crime takes place behind bars. Now, I'm not saying movies and TV shows don't exist with prison themes, I'm just saying it's less common. So less common that I can only think of three instances off the top of my head where prison is the central setting. One being the all-too-frequently-run-on-TV 1994 movie, The Shawshank Redemption. Get busy living, or get busy dying. The 2003 series Prison Break. I'm getting my brother out of here tonight. 
And I need your help. And while I'm damned to even know one title, the third prison story, or stories that sticks out the most in my mind, was a subgenre that was wildly popular in the 70s. That of the women's prison exploitation format that was akin to playing in Grindhouse double features. Save her! In exchange, I'll do anything! What's going on? Wait, those can't be the only stories that used prison as a setting, can they? Well, like I said, it's what I know off the top of my head. Unless you're willing to fill out the rest of the list. Escape at Danamora, Orange is the New Black, Oz, Prisoner Cell Block H, The Great Escape, Stalag 17, Escape from Alcatraz, Birdman of Alcatraz, Cool Hand Luke, The Longest Yard, Papillon, The Green Mile, Midnight Express, Shot Collar, Jailbait, Great Freedom, Wentworth, Blackbird, Locked Up, Let's Go to Prison, Double Jeopardy, Brubaker, Jailhouse Rock, On the Rocks, Ernest Goes to Jail. Should I keep going? Okay, okay, okay. Nobody likes a show-off. Jeez. Anyway, back to the women in prison genre. In spite of the genre going white-hot and sleazy in the 1970s, its early roots go all the way back to the early years of cinema and the silent era, where star of yesteryear Priscilla Dean appeared in 1919's The Wicked Darling and 1920's Outside the Law. As sound was added to film, the genre, the action, and the star power got more magnified, with the likes of Barbara Stanwyck, Jean Harlow, Agnes Moorhead, and even EGOT winner Rita Moreno cutting their teeth on the genre. But it wouldn't be until 1969 when, arguably, the most popular and the most notorious variation on the women in prison genre began to take hold on its audiences. This part of the show deals with some uncomfortable material, so if you want to skip over the uncomfortable stuff, please fast forward the show to roughly 14 minutes and 15 seconds. If on the other hand you want to hear lurid details on the women's prison genre of movies, you've been warned. First the Fox, then Teresa and Isabel, and now 99 Women Without Men. 1969's 99 Women was as much shocking as it was provocative when it was released, partly because of how freewheeling things were in the 60s that movies were able to get away with more than ever before. It wasn't uncommon for these movies to contain elements of, and I quote from the Wikipedia entry on the subject under their subheading of recurring plot elements, quote, characters that are fellow inmates that may include a sarcastic prostitute, a manipulative snitch, or an aggressive lesbian. The female criminals are usually hypersexualized and fetishize homosexual relationships. The authority figure in a prison is usually a cruel woman who herself is a variation on the traditional prison lesbian. Common scenes in women in prison films include an innocent girl or group of them being sent to a penitentiary or reform school being run by a male or lesbian warden, a welcoming ritual with which may include group strip searches, giving up personal possessions, or showering, all while being watched by sexually deprived female inmates. Same-sex scenes between prisoners and the guards, or the female prisoners being abused or forced into prostitution by the male guards. It goes on. Female prisoners being sentenced to hard labor, such as scrubbing floors, chopping food, or digging dirt holes, sometimes while in the nude. Having a restrictive and uncomfortable dress code, such as being forced to go barefoot and or wearing skimpy and revealing prison uniforms. Fights between prisoners, sometimes in the shower or in the mud, many times while in the nude. 
death of a minor character, and female prisoners being sprayed by a fire hose for punishment. The narrative peaks with some kind of rebellion, which may include a fight, attempted breakout, or natural disasters such as a prison fire or earthquake. The story then follows with an uprising or escape sequence in which the villains are killed and the prisoner is freed. Occasionally, a new inmate is an undercover reporter investigating corruption, or a government agent sent to rescue a political prisoner. Most commonly, the prisoner is reunited with a man, a lover, father, or priest, who guides her to goodness so she can re-establish her life with with familial and heterosexual relationships. Getting comfortable yet, Neil? I'm starting to wonder why you don't have guests down here that often. I mean, that's a lot to process. How could they possibly do all that for something as sanitized as television? I'm getting there. After all, being able to do those things on television and still not manage to trample the lines of indecency is no easy task especially back then. In fact, one example of that was one of the reasons why the family viewing hour, the subject of our 41st episode, was initially invoked. Well, Judge Milburn will probably send you to the crib. What's a crib? It's the um, state school for girls. I've been there. The year was 1974, and NBC had heavily publicized a TV movie starring the up-and-coming young star of The Exorcist, Linda Blair. Although this story took place at a juvenile detention facility, they still presented it as though it was the increasingly popular women in prison exploitation genre. So much so that the movie managed to depict a full-on sexual assault. One so profound that it wound up, hesitate to use the word, inspiring a copycat crime of a similar nature later that year. And it was that said copycat crime that got the ball rolling for the family viewing hour to be briefly instituted in 1975. Subsequent airing of the movie in the 70s and 80s wound up cutting the scene, but has since been restored in DVD releases. I'm beginning to regret my request. Don't worry. The worst is over in three, two, one. This now concludes the content warning. If you were just listening to the entire segment, we apologize. For everybody else, we return to our show already in progress. With a story genre this controversial, just exactly how could it be cleaned up enough so that it can air on weekly television? Never mind the fact that, as our guest already indicated, the prison genre has aired on TV and in movies more than a couple of times. Short answer? Make them laugh, make them laugh. Don't you know everyone wants to laugh? <laughs> in other words, this was to be a comedy series. And who better to make the show than a writing duo who literally and figuratively helped launch the Fox Network's primetime lineup in 1987. A lot more needs to be said about TV writers and producers Michael Moy and the late Ron Levitt, both of whom would get their starts writing for some of the biggest TV shows of the 70s and 80s, including The Jeffersons and Silver Spoons, among others, that the two of them would write for both separately and in tandem for a company co-founded by the great Norman Lear called Embassy Television. The very same. Anyway... The two of them would go on and co-create Married with Children as an antidote to what was being considered popular at the time. 
and we can't stress enough at the time. Married would turn out to be the Fox Network's first primetime show when the network formally launched in 1987. And although it's easy to say that the show is a classic in this day and age, its first season on the air was met with a rocky reception, figuratively from critics and quite literally from TV viewers who had a hard time picking up the signals to all the newborn Fox stations that would debut. But for a network like Fox that was just starting out at the time, they could use all the content they could get their hands on. And Married with Children, for better or worse, was the network's highest-rated show during those pivotal first few months on the air. With seemingly little recourse, the network decided to partner up with Moy and Levitt once again to see if they had any more tricks up their sleeve. Turns out, they needed a hand from another TV writing veteran and one of their fellow colleagues. Our returning champion and future creator of Rachel Gunn RN, Catherine Green. I broke my pencil! Who, coincidentally, would pen episodes of another series Moy and Levitt would create a few years earlier, 1984's It's Your Move for NBC. The premise that all three of them would come up with is already a familiar one, but updated slightly for the 1980s. A yuppie is framed for shoplifting and must serve her time in a Wisconsin women's prison. And among the residents there were your typical collection of everyday cons. You had a prisoner with a short fuse, a sex pot cum prostitute, an odd criminal that was locked up for something non-violent but still white-collared, a guard who hated everybody, an assistant warden who happened to be of the opposite sex, a veteran con who had been locked up for years and is none too eager to show the fresh meat the ropes, and of course, some fresh meat to show around. In spite of the fact that this was to air on a network that could barely crawl, the show actually wound up attracting some pretty sizable talent, including showbiz veteran Peggy Cass as the aforementioned veteran prisoner. Sitcom mainstay Wendy Jo Sperber as Pam, the white-collared criminal busted for computer fraud, Australian soap opera actress Antoinette Byron as our resident hooker, another mainstay of comedy shows Denny Dillon oh, hi, Denny. as our gruff prison guard, future replacement voice of the slinky dog in the Toy Story movies Blake Clark as the assistant warden, and up-and-coming actress Julia Campbell as our fresh meat, Vicki Springer. And finally, as Dawn Murphy, the prisoner with a short fuse, future star of many crime dramas including The Shield on FX and the ladies' number one detective agency on HBO, Pounder. It was that. What? Did you just spit up something? What? No. I was mentioning the actress who played the angry prisoner. Pounder. Pounder is not a word. It's spelled C-C-H. I know how to spell it, but isn't it pronounced... Seriously? You've never heard of C-C-H Pounder? That's how her name is pronounced. Spelled out. Not spoken phonetically. So it's not... Pounder? I'm really starting to regret making this request. Well, don't go regretting just yet. We'll find out if Fox's attempt to add some levity to a controversial genre helps the network get off on good behavior, or if women in prison gets to take a fateful walk down the green mile. After the break. The spirit of the Northwest is Cairo. We're part of your life every day. Getting to know you and sharing your dreams together 
Telehell's premium content of the damned. I like the way those jeans fit, do you? Oh, you're bored. Huh? You're bored. No, I'm not bored. Oh, no? No. Can you dance? Uh, yeah, I can dance, but I'm not going to dance for you. Why? Uh, I don't want to. Well, there's a reason. Yeah? Do you always do what you don't want to do? Uh, no, I always do what I want to do. And I don't do what I don't want to do. You've got a real good attitude. The only way to listen to Telehell's premium content of The Damned is by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash podcast for just a few bucks a month. You can listen to our premium content and get some swag along the way. Once again, that's patreon.com slash podcast. Now at new low prices. And now, back to this week's torture. October 11th, 1987. Judge Robert Bork is on track to lose his bid for the Supreme Court. The Bee Gees, far removed from their 70s heyday, somehow manages to have a top five hit in the late 80s with You Win Again. And at 8.30, 7.30 Central. Based on how cheap this courtroom set looks, it seems as though we're starting an episode of The People's Court, already in progress. Philip, this is an outrage. I am not a shoplifter. You know that. You pay my bills. (laughs) Just calm down, honey. State of Wisconsin versus Victoria Springer. How does the defendant plead? Guilty, Your Honor. As Vicky's now ex-husband walks out of court with a random blonde, we get to underscore just how serious the situation is. Through overwrought, oversung lounge music. see Fox take a calm, subtle approach to things. Don't worry. The late Ray Colcord, the composer of that caterwauling and the show's music score, 
would do a lot better throughout his career. And, of course, we all make mistakes. Now you're As Act 1 begins by getting to know our inmates and their... seemingly posh surroundings? Hi there! <laughs> you all to know that I don't belong here. I'm innocent. We really don't care. There's the sink, and there's your bunk. You make any noise, we kill you. I'm beginning to see why they call it prison. Well, you may see why it's called prison, but for the benefit of those of us with ears, you should be seeing this prison cell. Holy shit, are you kidding me with this? First of all, I don't care if this is supposed to be a lighthearted satirical take on getting busted. Pretty much 99% of the items in this so-called prison cell will be contraband. Everything from frilly bed sets to Ikea-looking desks and cabinets and various other tchotchkes that would earn you several months in the hole. Even the clothes they're wearing is wrong. I mean, prisons do have jumpsuits still, right? Well... I guess they are dressed as their characters would indicate. The tough working class prisoner clad all in denim. The lady of the evening dressed as a lady of the evening in the daytime, complete with high heels even. The innocent looking older lady dressed like a female Dapper Dan doll. I mean, I guess even in Oz, they let Adebisi wear that beanie thing. Not to contradict the bit that we did earlier where I'm claiming Fine. there's no prison it's things, but yeah, I mean, uh, I, I've seen a couple of the shows. Like, I know uh, this show, I believe, is supposed to be loosely based on Prisoner Cell Block H, which is a show that aired for years and years in Australia. But from what I've seen on that show, they wear standard issue prison stuff. I mean, unless this is re unless this is really supposed to be like a satire satire of things, this, I think, just might have been overkill. Yeah. I mean, most mostly they do from all the shows that I've seen. Everybody's wearing a uniform. I mean, the the officers are wearing the uniform. De Denny Dillon's especially wearing her prison garb, and I mean, it, it's not like a full-on suit and hat and baton or anything. It's just, it just, I, I don't know if they were just going for something avant-garde or anything, but if this was meant to be a parody of a show, then it's a parody of a show, but... I don't know, they, they, the, the ways that I see, I've seen like the promos for it online and they just made it look like it was supposed to be taken dead seriously. And especially with the theme song too, just to circle back to that, it was just like, you know, is it's a sitcom, but how funny is this supposed to be? Because again, given the subject matter, it's just, you know, there's only so much line towing that you can do basically. Right. I mean, it, it could very well be just cheers set in a prison. As we now embark on hearing everybody's origin story. So, what are you in for? For standing by my man. A debatable choice when your man is mowing down four bank guards. <laughs> What's Miss Congeniality in for? Oh, she killed someone. Oh my God, and she's here? It wasn't her, folks. He was beating her and beating her and beating her. How many beatings can a girl take in a day? It's a rhetorical question. Rhetorically? Eight. Must you always put in clips from The Simpsons on your show? Considering the subject matter, I'd be foolish not to. 
as we now see Vicky not quite fully understanding how things work in prison. And that just because their prison cell is decked out to look like the bedding department at a local Montgomery ward, doesn't mean they'll wind up with the same level of customer service. Alright felons, it's time to play Guess Your Rehabilitation. You mean I might have to cook? Don't worry, they won't put you in the kitchen yet. Newcomers get to work over by the showers. What's over by the showers? The toilets. <laughs> and now for good measure, a same-sex stereotype and a feeble effort to rope in male viewers. That Dawn, is she, you know, strange? Strange? Oh, you mean gay? Yes. No. Oh, thank God. <laughs> I've heard about people like that in places like this. <laughs> well, you don't have to worry about Dawn. She's totally straight. Hi, Bonnie. <laughs> okay, Neil, it's time for this visit to be worth every penny. Based on the opening minutes only, what are your first impressions of these characters? Well, first of all, hey, instant lesbian. Well... It is prison, I suppose. We're doing well at following the tropes here again. The rich Karen type, who tries to ask the guard for coffee at breakfast. Our tough, greedy one, will she ever grow a heart? And best of all, innocent Eve, who's harboring a very dark side. I mean, these are things you could put in any standard sitcom. Does it have to be in a prison? But it seems to work in the prison. So, I don't know. I like the idea of the characters but it would seem to me that it could also be any other show. Well, before you analyze characters any further, we still have to meet Blake Clark's character, who I erroneously called the assistant warden. According to guard Denny Dillon, his title is actually secretary to the warden, who, just by happenstance, seems to be in need of a secretary for his own. I have a problem, you see. I don't want to clean toilets. Look, I don't get involved in job details. Talk to Virginia. She handles work assignments. Who's Virginia? She's one of your fellow inmates. She works as my secretary. Go out and talk to her. But there's nobody out there. Does that mean you'll be needing a new secretary? It's a good bet. And I never want to hear people complaining that they can't find work ever again. Because if it's that easy for a convict to find gainful employment as a trustee, the rest of the world should have no excuse. Of course, just because jobs are seemingly easy to get in women's prison doesn't mean it's always going to be the ones that you'd actually want, as our other inmates will explain. How come I never get any of the cushy jobs? I've been here three to five years. <laughs> something? Well, considering our main con is now about a heartbeat away from running the joint, the notion of a so-called screw being in the same cell as all the other cons is not exactly rubbing people the right way, especially since she's still technically fresh meat. 
And, as I'm sure we'll know, anybody who's working on the inside is pretty much destined to get beaten within an inch of their lives. Or worse. But, since this is a sitcom from the late 1980s, obviously they can't go that extreme. So, as we pick things up in Act 2, we'll see just about as PG-rated a version as we're going to get. Alright, that's enough! I won't have this kind of thing in my cell block! We'll finish this later. Or not. I guess because we've conditioned ourselves to watching shows like Oz over the years, it almost seems kind of quaint for there to be no consequences other than a stern talking to. Maybe they're saving it for the punchline. I mean, this is still a comedy show after all. Thank you. Ah, uh, you're welcome. <sighs> uh, can you get me out of here? Well, sure. From a haircut? Seriously? You're locked up in a penitentiary. A couple inmates tie your hair up behind prison bars. A guard comes in to break things up and then unties you by cutting off the hair that they tied you up with. And you're acting like a few missing locks is akin to the gas chamber? You're lucky you're not being beaten with a sack of nickels in solitary confinement. Well, to be fair, it was the 1980s. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, image and appearances reached new depths of shallow back then. Care to explain? I mean, I grew up in the 80s. Hair was everything. Aquanet and Activator ruled the universe. Blow dryers, curling irons were necessity. Frizzy was the way to be. Neon clothing, bangles, the shirt that hung down over the shoulder a la Flashdance, and Madonna bows, socks matching sweaters, I mean, sweaters that weren't even worn, just thrown over your shoulder. Big t-shirts telling us that Frankie say relax. White sport coats worn in the Datsun Z with the T-top. Need I go on? It's no wonder that Vicky was sad about her new hairdo. No opportunity for side ponytail. Be that as it may, an impromptu haircut seems to be the straw that broke the well-manicured camel's back as we now get to meet our final inmate, played by the late and beloved Wendy Jo Sperber, who, by the by, I'm just gonna go ahead and call the highlight of this show because she's the only person in this show so far who's actually said anything that's actually funny. Why does everybody hate me? It's because you're stupid and obnoxious. <laughs> now I say that not to hurt you, but to enlighten you, and more importantly, to amuse myself. The only thing a person needs to survive here is some kind of power. You have that now. The power to do favors. I am not a sex toy. You will be. <laughs> And really, what can be said about Wendy Jo Sperber that hasn't been said by others? Why do I have a feeling I'm going to be the one who says it? Because you paid to be my co-host this week. Fair point. I mean, so many questions here. First of all, why does Wendy Jo get the and Wendy Jo treatment in the titles? Is her career of Private Benjamin, movie violations, her eight minutes of screen time in Back to the Future, and her role in Bosom Buddies give her the same rights as and Martin Sheen as the president or and Joan Collins as Alexis? Now, 
That being said, I think she's the funniest portion of the show so far, even when she has her back to the camera and is dancing to herself, playing her Hammond organ, which, this being prison, she naturally has. I think she's a funny actress, I'm just not sure about the limited time they give her here to just come in and come out dispensing wisdom like some sort of a Buddha figure. Yeah, Wendy Jo Sperber definitely deserved a lot better in her career, and she did eventually yeah. do... I mean, there was this one, there was one show that you did list on your uh, request list that I almost considered doing, but then I realized it wasn't that bad. I'm talking about 1990s Babes, where the punchline is... That's- they're women, they're, all fat. they're fat, deal with it, and it's just like... I think I'm, she got a little typecast. Yeah, that too, it's just, I mean, she was naturally funny, and it's kind of unfortunate that these were the roles that she wound up having throughout the rest of her career, although she was pretty damn good at it too, so maybe, you know, the hell of it, she was good at what she yeah. did and she didn't complain. I kind of wish they'd given her a little more here. So, now that young Vicky realizes what kind of power she has, she gets to do what Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor wished they could do in Stir Crazy and assert her newfound dominance. Or at least as much dominance as a low-budget sitcom can allow her to be. You know, now that I work for Mr. Rafferty, I can do all sorts of things for you. Great. Be a piñata at my birthday party. Right? <laughs> My sorority sisters and I used to play. What do you guys bet? Fingers. <laughs> I'm out. In other words, she's treated just about the same as anybody else who gets promoted to a position of middle management. She only thinks she has power when all she really has is a fancy ceremonial title and very little else. Well, don't you think you're speaking a little too soon there? At least Dawn is starting to come around on Vicky's new lot in life. I got this friend, Sarah. She and me were like sisters, but she got into some trouble and now she's here in isolation. And I heard she's being transferred to another prison next week. What I want is for you to sign her and me passes to Rafferty's office after he leaves. That way I could visit with her for a little while. You want me to forge two passes? You said you'd do me a favor. I was kind of hoping it'd be something that wouldn't get me flogged. <laughs> Just forget I asked. No, wait a minute, I'll do it. And all it took was a few menacing stares and the threat of bodily harm. Just like corporate America. I'm starting to wonder if there's any excess baggage you wanted to share with the world. Uh, no comment as we now see Vicky living up to that favor, and also continuing to thaw the Ice Queen. I'll wait for Sarah in Rafferty's office, that way I can surprise her when she gets here. Dawn, I can't. Mr. Rafferty trusts me. Well, I trust you. I trust you to let me have a chance to see my best friend, probably for the last time. I hope you appreciate what this act of kindness is costing me in terms of my own welfare and self-esteem. Drop dead. Eat clams out of season. All the while, Vicky is wondering whether being a prison go-between is worth it. She places a call to our opposition, and I'm just going to say right now, if they're not going to listen to us down here, they're damn sure not going to listen to you in a prison. God, it's me, Vicky. 
the one you overlooked at the trial? Please don't let me get caught. Please, God. I forgot my briefcase. Mr. Rafferty, there are a couple of things I was meaning to tell you. What was that? I let someone visit Don Murphy in your office. Who? Sir, gosh, this is the most touching story you're ever going to hear. Her name is Sarah. I Sarah? The stoolie? She's the one that handed Murphy into the police. Oh. Now, if this were an HBO show or a women's prison exploitation movie, I can all but guarantee that the scene would have ended a lot bloodier and also a lot curse-wordier than what we wound up with here. Again, this was a broadcast sitcom airing in the late 1980s. Even if it is a network that boasted that it wanted to be different from all of the other networks, standards and practices are still standards and practices. And of course, since this is the first episode of a TV show, there has to be consequences for Vicky's actions, so that her release from the joint gets inevitably delayed. How was the haul? <laughs> the first week wasn't so bad. I dusted. <laughs> the week after that was hell. Well, if it makes you feel any better, Dawn got a week in solitary herself. She got a week for attempted murder, and I got two for signing a pass? You know, I was in the hole for a month once. Of course I was lost. Because, let's face it, if everything was resolved in just the first episode, there wouldn't be a need for a second. That and we also need to establish the tough prisoner and fresh meat might actually be the show's key relationship. You mean... She's gonna be her prison bitch? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Just because you're a visitor down here doesn't mean you get to invoke the stereotypes. For sanitized 80s sitcom purposes, let's just say that they get along better here than they did at the beginning. I'm on my way to snake bowls, Murphy. Somehow the words I apologize just don't sing. Well, what is it you want? I want revenge. I want an eye for an eye. I want... To spit on you! Fair is fair, you hate cleaning toilets. I hate human spittle. But if it'll make you feel better, go ahead. I can't do it! Good. Because I would have killed you. Well, I still hope this has been a valuable lesson to you. Did I just hear a morality play about apologies and their relation to human saliva? <laughs> yeah. And based upon this, am I to assume the head shaving tonight has been canceled? Yep. God, I hate this place. <laughs> So, where does women in prison get locked up among the confines of Telehell? Wait a minute. There's still ten minutes left on the video file. Maybe the show did a tag or something. Well, they already put up the executive producer credits. I can't imagine there was anything left to tell here. But aren't you the least bit curious? Eh, what the here. I can use an actual laugh outside of Wendy Joe Sperber. Let's see what else is on here. Again. Oh, come on in. You needn't be shy. I mean, we know each other pretty well by now, right? Fact is, I'm oh, a big believer. Oh, no, 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 no. We can't play this here. Wait, wait, what's wrong with Dolly Parton? Shh, don't mention her name around here. But she's Dolly. She's great. 
And her short-lived variety show was great, too. I know that, and that's why we can't play this here. She's too good and too wholesome to play in hell. Anything involving her will be a violation of our code of conduct. Hell has a code of conduct? It's a long story. We can't have nice things down here, because if somebody were to find out... Fuck. What? <sighs> We're about to see. shit out of you down here if you play anything representing the good of humanity. I don't make up the rules. Neil, do me a favor and push that button over there. My arms are a little dislocated right now. You mean... Oh! This is how you activate the nine circles. Done and done. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery. Hang on a sec. There they go. Much better. Anyway, while I'll admit that this show wound up pretty tame by today's standards, the fact that it aired on a rule-breaking network like Fox pretty much branded the show from the outset no matter what the intentions were. The show only running for 13 episodes up until its cancellation in 1988 is proof of that. As far as the show itself goes, it still invoked just enough of the stereotypes of the women in prison genre so that it still needed to be given a cavity search, even if it turned out that elements of lust and violence were toned down significantly compared to its theatrical forerunners, they were still there. And those who were able to see the show were able to complain loudly in rap that a genre like this wasn't meant to be taken lightly. One particular review from Howard Rosenberg of the Los Angeles Times gives the show an unflattering coat of paint, stating, quote, Women in prison is sort of Hogan's heroes of the prison set. You know, all the stuff that makes prison so hilarious? It's also pathetically unfunny. Into their goofy midst Sunday arrives a spoiled, pampered Vicky, a la Goldie Hawn and Private Benjamin. If you like punchless punchlines and cheap gay jokes, Women in Prison is the show for you. Beware, though, for Fox says Women in Prison is reality-based. Ooh. That's not me being sarcastic, by the way. A TV critic really wrote the word ooh in his review. Though the critic does bring up another point about the show. 
The fact that they went ahead and mutated two far more successful stories, that of the spoiled rich girl getting involved with a comparatively rougher life, i.e. Private Benjamin, and Hogan's Heroes, a show which, in spite of its long run on TV, somehow managed to make it onto TV Guide's worst TV shows of all time list. And while it does manage to maintain the, I guess you could say, sensibilities of Hogan's Heroes, the only difference between this show and Private Benjamin is that Goldie Hawn chose to go into the army while Julia Campbell was forced to go into prison for a crime she didn't commit. So, while this show manages to avoid fraud for it trying in vain to be its own thing, still got a market for heresy towards another subgenre, that of the poor little rich girl trope. Anything to add, Neil? You know, it's a decent premise. They knew it was a comedy, so they couldn't make it too violent or dingy or cruel. And then they thought they were kicking around stereotypes of the time, namely of the yuppie fish out of water. Even with less than stars as the main roles, they still managed to milk a pretty decent, if truncated, performance out of Wendy Joe, And they have potential comedy in Denny Dillon, who from her other performances in things like Dream On, and even the sixth season of Saturday Night Live, is a veteran funny person. I wish they'd kind of given them both more to do. But it's not the worst TV show I've seen. It's certainly not one of the best. But, you know, it, it, it just seems like a, a lot of the same shows of the late 80s and early 90s, where they kind of put people in a room together and see what happens. Women in Prison earns four out of nine circles of telehell. But like I said, the show itself does seem pretty tame now compared to many other prison references that we've made in this show. And there's certainly a far cry from what became an arguably popular story genre back in its day. You know, most of my prison watching has been guys in prison, as noted in the long list I gave you above. But I'd like to think that without groundbreaking, in heavy air quotes, shows like this one, we wouldn't have had such shows like Orange is the New Black, which was at first also billed as a comedy, with the upwardly mobile type being shoved into another fish in the prison situation. Funny, yes, but much more violent, and enough sex to put the Fox censor's eyes out. So given the limitations of broadcast TV, I guess if you're going to do Prison for Women, this may be what you should have expected. I mean, you can go all the way back to the 40s and 50s and watch stuff like Stalag 17, which was a comedy set in a prison camp. Um, and you still have the kind of different tropes. You have the quiet person, you have the loud person. Um, and even in things like Escape from Alcatraz or Brubaker or Cool Hand Luke, you know, it prison, unfortunately, becomes a very formulaic thing because you don't have a lot of scene changes right? It's all relationship-based, unless they're trying to dig their way out, like in The Great Escape or Shawshank. But even in Shawshank, you don't even know that he's digging his way out until the very end of the movie. So it's all about the relationships and what life is like in prison. This show is what life is like in prison if it was um, really funny and wasn't really like a prison. <laughs> Couldn't have said it better myself, Neil. Got anything else to say before I send you back? Not really, other than it was fun to actually visit hell. Though, I do regret wearing a long sleeve shirt. Also, I kind of expected there to be more uh, oomph around here. Oomph? 
Well, I wouldn't be giving to your Patreon if I didn't listen to a couple shows. Anytime you bring a guest here, they're always entering and exiting in weird ways. When you had the Happy Days podcast on the show, you let Joe Blevins fly out in a helicopter. When you had Andrew Dick cameo in your Get Smart review, you gave him mountain climbing equipment. And when you had Dave of Dave's Archives on, you let him out in a stampede. Hell, even Diva from Musical Help transported you through a pneumatic tube. And don't even get me started on those visits with the Marvelous. Are you really that tight on budget now that you can't whip up a clever way to get rid of me? Well... You really are a fan. And also a paying guest. Guess I can't deny that the customer's always right. Okay, I'll bite. Was there anything that you had in mind? Huh. Now that's something that I haven't tried yet. And I think I got the tools I need to make it happen. Very well. One supersonic exit coming right up. Since you hail near Seattle, that also means you live pretty close to Boeing headquarters, where they make all the airplanes and jet engines. So what better way to send you out of here than on a decommissioned Harrier jet that I bought with some leftover Pepsi points? Just be sure you start blinking a lot before you hit peak G-force, otherwise your vision will start graying out and your face might rip off. I appreciate getting launched out of here this way, but did you have to tie me to the outside? We needed room for some personal items from Jeff Bezos. And we worked cheap on delivery. Happy landings. Worth every penny. Next time on Telehell. Our wildcard month continues with another Patreon episode request. And this one is a real kick with a steel-toed boot, particularly in my adolescent years and also my love of trivia. When we return, our two contestants will wage a deadly war in the fast and ferocious Jack attack. Only one will survive, the precious mountain. The temperature's rising. Never let them see you sweat! Until then. If it's not in telehell, it's not worth a damn. If you'll allow me one quick moment of sincerity, I really do want to thank all of our fans out there who listen to us, whether you're catching us on our social media feeds or on our actual podcast feeds or wherever you're listening, and especially those who are listening to us on our Patreon. We really appreciate our fans, and I can't think of a more appreciative fan than our special guest today, Neil Weinstein, and I promise to get the name right from now on. Thank you, Neil. You've been great. And I really do hope it was worth every penny. And now, here are the rest of the credits. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976. And all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. The show may be over, but you know where to find us. On social media, Twitter and Facebook, at Telehell Podcast. 
Want to hear some premium content? Go to patreon.com slash telehealthpodcast. And if you have any questions or comments about this show, feel free to contact us at our complaint line, telehealthpodcast at gmail.com. But even more than that, please be sure to like, comment, rate, subscribe, lie to us all over the places where Telehell is streaming, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and many others, just by Googling Telehell. Telehell.